My favorite Sundays at SunWest for sure, uh, just to hear uh, people sharing about what God is actively doing in their lives. And, you know, often on Sundays we talk about ideas and we talk about, um, you know, inviting people to journey with Jesus. And it's, mo- it's uh, Sundays like this where we actually hear uh, that in a new and fresh way uh, as Jesus not only impacted people 2,000 years ago, like we're going to talk about, uh, but that he is alive and active and his spirit is working today, uh, calling people to himself. Uh, and that is what we're talking about this morning as we continue the series in Mark, as we work through the gospel of Mark. Uh, and the title this morning is Come, uh, Follow Me. Now, why did we pick the gospel of Mark? It was likely the first gospel ever, ever written. Uh, and Jesus is the most influential person in the history of the world, uh, I believe. And that would make Mark the most important book in the history of the world. And so I think it's worth our time to take time in the gospel of Mark. And last week, I... I challenged uh, you to read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. Now's the test. How many of you guys this week read the Gospel of Mark in one sitting? Uh, we got a few. Okay. Good job. Uh, the rest of you, uh, you have another week to try it. Uh, so uh, go to the Welcome Center. You can, you can buy the Gospel of Mark journal. It, it just has the, the whole book on one side of uh, the page, and then the other side is the journal, and so you can use that to journal your way through Mark. You can use it to write sermon notes, uh, and we invite you to, to just engage uh, in that as we journey through Mark together. So a little bit of context, I covered this last week, uh, but just to give you the framework before we uh, jump back into the text, uh, Mark was written probably in 60 to 70 AD, and it was written by a guy named John Mark. And John Mark was a companion to both Paul and Peter. If you continue reading the New Testament and you read into Acts, you'll see there's this guy named John Mark, and he was a uh, he was a companion on those missionary journeys. And what we have in the Gospel of Mark is likely the perspective of Peter. And so we think about Mark, uh, but it's not necessarily Mark's perspective we're reading. It's it's Mark actually writing down and documenting some of Peter's experiences uh, and and allowing us into Peter's story. And is written to whom? Well, it was lightly written in Rome to Mark's readers who were under persecution uh, from the Roman Empire at this point. Uh, so it was written to them, but as with every biblical story, it's written for us. Uh, God not only had in mind uh, to encourage the people at that time that were trying to follow Jesus, but also to encourage us today uh, through his scriptures as we seek to follow him. Key themes, I'm going to just go through these really quick because I covered them last week. Uh, you can re-watch uh, or watch for the first time last week's message. Key themes, who is Jesus? Mark wants us to know who he is. Uh, he wants us to know the way of the cross, that uh, this is, when we follow Jesus, that journey is actually going to lead to self-denial, which is represented in the cross, which we saw this morning in the stories of baptism as people died to themselves as they entered the water of baptism, came out to life, uh, came out uh, to live life to follow Jesus. Uh, that is the way of the cross. It's a way of self-denial. Uh, it is a book about discipleship, which is going to be our focus this morning. And discipleship is just a really fancy word that means to, uh, to follow Jesus, to follow behind Jesus. It's a book about discernment. One of Mark's themes is, do you have eyes to see and ears to hear what God is doing? Because sometimes we can't perceive with our human eyes what actually God is doing. And he's inviting us to look deeper into God's activity in our world and in our lives. Uh, he talks about the kingdom of God and uh, breaking through barriers. We'll see over and over and over again that Jesus is not concerned about the barriers 
that we are concerned about, and he goes beyond religious barriers, beyond tra uh, traditional barriers, but beyond ethnic, ethnic barriers uh, to bring God's good news of his kingdom uh, to people who were formerly excluded but now are included and invited to be a part of the kingdom of God. All right. You got all that? Okay, so uh, where is this all happening? Uh, well, it's happening in the Holy Land. Uh, it's happening in the, in the region of Judea. And this map will be important as we move forward through Mark. Uh, where Jesus goes, where he doesn't go. He's from Nazareth, which is a small 500-person town. Uh, there's actually uh, two major cities, and this we'll come back to this later, but Sephorus and Tiberias, uh, which uh, were capital cities at different points in Jesus' life. The capital actually went from Sephoria, Sephorus to Tiberias uh, about when Jesus was in his 20s. But ironically, Jesus never goes into the capital cities. He never goes into the cities. He actually goes around the cities, but uh, we'll get to that later. Uh, Today, the, what we're focusing on is the Sea of Galilee is going to be the scene of the text we're looking at. And so when you're reading Scripture and you read the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias or the Lake of Tiberias or the Lake of Gennesaret, these are all names for the exact same body of water. So this makes it really easy for you and for me. We, we have to figure out what all this is when we're reading the Scriptures. It's actually the same body of water. Different names. Every time Jesus gets in a boat and goes somewhere in his Gospels, it's on this lake. Jesus will journey frequently from one side to the other, as we'll see in the book of Mark. Uh, the lake is 21 kilometers from north to south, and it's only about 43 meters deep. Okay, Mark chapter 1. We went through the intro last week, and we're going to finish. Uh, we're going to start where we finished last week, which is this verse. Now, after John was arrested, handed over... And every time someone is handed over in the book of Mark, the kingdom of God advances. Every time Satan seems like he's uh, cornered somebody or is getting his way, God finds a way to redeem it. So John was arrested, handed over. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we start in this verse because it is the hinge verse between the introduction that Mark gives and then the stories of the ministry of Jesus. Mark prepares us in those verses like we looked at last week. And then this is the gospel, the ministry of Jesus in a nutshell, that the time, that the kingdom of God is at hand, the time has come. And is it, when he says it's at hand, it means it's near. You could actually reach out and touch it. And it's, it's the spatial word. And I believe what is happening uh, even today, is that the kingdom of God is present for those that can see it and for those that are willing to pursue it. It's not out there somewhere. The kingdom of God is not in heaven somewhere. In fact, the word heaven just refers to this place or the space where God is fully reigning. And the kingdom of God itself, that word kingdom, uh, we could actually better translate the reign of God because it's an active word, that God's reign, that God is king. And God's reign is actually at hand. Even though we don't always feel like he's in control, even though we don't always feel like he's king in a situation, if you have eyes to see it, you can actually begin to see that it is around you, that God's kingdom is around you, that there are spaces and pockets where God is reigning. And we saw that in the lives of people as they testified to Jesus having reign in their lives. And so John and Jesus, as Mark opens, invite us to repent and believe the good news. And repent is not a bad word. We think that repent is this awful word where you just got to 
talk about all the sins and things you did wrong. Repent is actually a word about turning towards. And we often think about it as turning away. You know, I got to turn away from all this stuff. Uh, but we only think of it that way if we don't have love for the thing that we're turning towards. I used the analogy of marriage last week, that when we say yes to our spouse to marry our spouse, hopefully we're not thinking about all these other people we had to say no to, as if you had all those other options. You're not that good looking. Uh, but no, we're focusing on the one we're turning towards. And I, and I would argue that if we see repent as a, bad, as a bad word, it might be because we don't have affection in our hearts for Jesus. And so our focus needs to be less on, hey, what are all the stuff I got to say no to in my life to follow Jesus? Uh, and our, our, our thoughts should actually be on, who is this man? Who is this person? And I believe that as our hearts are captivated by the person of Jesus, our yeses become easier and our noes become easier. So we repent and we turn towards Jesus, which means, yes, turning away from things, but the, the emphasis is on who we're turning towards. And this word believe, repent and believe. I won't re-say what I said last week, but basically believe is not an intellectual word, but it's an action word. It's, it's, a, it's better translated trust. Put your trust in Jesus. It doesn't mean that we don't have doubts. You know, sometimes we think, you know, i got to believe all the right things and get all the answers in my head before I follow Jesus. That's actually not what it's talking about. It says to turn towards Jesus and trust him enough to follow him. It doesn't mean figure it all out, get your life together, have all the answers. That's not what it means. It means do you trust him enough to follow him. And so this verse kind of clears the way for the ministry of Jesus. And we see the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the following verses, which we're going to get to in a minute, but I need to give you some background for us to actually understand what's happening. There was a time in Israel's history after they'd been freed from slavery in Egypt, if you go back into the Old Testament, and they were traveling around in the wilderness, wondering if God had forgotten about them. And their tradition said that there was this man named Moses who had gone up on this mountain, Mount Sinai, and that God had encountered Moses on that mountain. And that God gave Moses his words. And they believe that God not only spoke to Moses, but that he gave Moses a copy of what he said. And they believe that the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were given to them by God. And so as a community, they started to orient themselves around these five books, the books uh, that, that they refer to as the Torah. Everybody say Torah. The Jewish people believed the Torah was the way. It was the truth. It was the life. It, it, their, their essence and their identity evolved around these books. They believed that the best way to live was the way that the Torah told them to live. So the central passion of the people of Jesus at the time of Jesus was actually to understand the Torah, to obey the Torah, to make it central to their life and to their community. So the Torah was the biggest thing for the Jewish people. When kids went to school, the content of what they studied was the Torah. You know, they didn't have to do math. They didn't do science. I mean, oh, man, that would have been awesome. Uh, they studied the Torah. That was their subject. That was what they studied. Every kid, every class, the Torah was central to them. And so they went to elementary school, and that was called Beit Sefer. Everybody say Beit Sefer. And so boys and girls went to school around the age of six, and the curriculum, like I said, was the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So 
kids would learn to read the Torah. They would write out the Torah. They would recite the Torah. Uh, many of them, by this point, began to know parts of the Torah by memory. They would, they would finish uh, Beit Sefer by the age around 10 or 11. And by the time they were done, at 10 or 11, let me show you, they had... best of the best had this memorized. First five books. All of that memorized. Age 10 or 11. I know it makes you want to quit right now, but hang on. Hang on. So the best of the best would actually uh, move on to the next stage of school. But those who were not good enough, those who didn't kind of make the cut, that those who couldn't memorize the Torah, they couldn't recite it, they didn't understand it quite as clearly and as good as the other kids uh, would actually leave school. They would leave school at this point, age 10 or 11. Girls would soon marry in that culture. Uh, shortly after that, guys would actually go back and they would learn the family business or the family's family trade. So uh, the boys would learn either to be potters or leather workers or olive producers or maybe fishermen or carpenters or maybe, uh, you know, something else that uh, was a a trade at that time, that's what the boys would go and do. Now, there would be few that would have the ability to actually continue into the next stage, uh, but some would. And that stage is called Beit Talmud. Everybody say Beit Talmud. So the rabbi, uh, there was different synagogues throughout Judea, and the there would be rabbis, local rabbis, that would be planted in these synagogues. And they would teach Beit Talmud at the synagogue. So students could hear the rabbis discuss the text they would listen to the rabbis explain the text. The uh, rabbis would debate the text with other rabbis or they would share other points of view. Uh, and there were a few who went to Bet Talmud and would begin to study the deeper meaning of the Torah and then move beyond that to the Tanakh, which is, the, which is a word that just describes the prophets and the other writings that are in your Old Testament. So by the end of Bet Talmud, the best of the best of the best would actually finish memorizing the rest of the Old Testament, what you have as the Old Testament, uh, Genesis to Malachi, which was all of that. Memorized. By the age of 14 or 15. So, as you can guess, very few students were able to cut it. Very few students were the best of the best of the best. That's why you call them the best of the best. And everybody else went on. Uh, with their lives, the family business, uh, and just uh, continued in the way that their fathers and mothers had in the previous generations, carrying on the family business. So for those select few who were good enough, uh, they would move on to something called Beit Midrash. Everybody say Beit Midrash. So the best of the best of the best graduate into this level of education. And what would happen at this point is they would go to a rabbi and they would apply. They would desire to follow a rabbi. So they would go to a rabbi and say, uh, can I follow you? Can, can, do I have what it takes to follow you? And at this point, uh, the rabbi would have to go into a process of, of trying to discern and decide if this person, if this kid actually had what it took to know what I know, to do what I do, to be like I am, be who I am. And so this is what is referred to as discipleship. 
person who would follow a rabbi was referred to as the disciple. And we often think of discipleship as knowing, believing the right things. That, again, is not what it's talking about. It, yes, belief, yes, understanding, but it's more than that. It's actually following a rabbi. It's doing what the rabbi would do, and it's being as much like the rabbi as you possibly can. It's about following and imitating. That's what discipleship is, following and imitating. So this took a deep commitment not only to the scriptures, but you would give your whole life to this. You would have to say no to everything else in your life to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost. Am I willing to give up everything in order to know what this rabbi knows, to do what this rabbi does, and to be as much like this rabbi as I possibly can? And they would be with the rabbi 24 hours a day. And rabbis, different, they were different in how they, in how they understood the Torah, and so they would have different emphasis emphases as they taught the Torah. This would be referred to as the yoke, the yoke of a rabbi. So they might say, this is what it means to follow the law, and another one might say, no, this is what it means to follow, follow the law. And so you would follow that specific rabbi's interpretation, understanding of what the Bible said, and the rabbi would put his yoke upon you. I put my yoke upon you, my teaching upon you, my way of life upon you, so that you can know what the rabbi knows in order to do what the rabbi does, in order to be like the rabbi. So, to review, how did you become one? You went to school, Beit Sefer, Beit Talmud, and then you would go to a rabbi, you would tell him uh, that you had a desire to follow him, and he would put you through a series of questions and tests, and he might observe you for a while, let you walk behind him, he would get to know you, and he would ask you questions, and he would obviously uh, try and answer these as best you can, and he would try and observe if you love the Torah, if you love God, and if you have what it takes to be one of his disciples. And then after all of that, he might say to you, I don't think you quite have what it takes. I can tell that you love the Torah, I can tell that you love God, but you're not quite ready to become one of my disciples. You can go and learn your family, trade, and business. So very few actually had the ability to get to the stage of discipleship. If a rabbi discerned that that this potential disciple did have what it takes, he would say to that disciple, come follow me. Come be like me. And the few who made it to be those disciples, they'd walk with the rabbi. They would walk behind the rabbi 24 hours a day. And apparently, uh, I've heard stories that even disciples would go to the bathroom with their rabbi. They wanted to mimic absolutely everything about the rabbi. You know, to me, there's a certain limit. But uh, hey, uh, all or nothing. And so there was even a saying that developed at this time and a blessing that would say, uh, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, which meant, May you follow behind your rabbi so closely that whatever he's walking on, that dust would be kicked up onto you. That is the picture of discipleship, being covered in the dust of the rabbi because you're following behind the rabbi and the one you're trying to mimic your life behind. So this has implications for how we understand the ministry of Jesus. Most rabbis would begin their uh, ministry career around the age of 30. They would become a discipleship for their young adult life, the beginning of their adult life, and then around the age of 30, they would become their own rabbi and make disciples for themselves. And here we have Jesus around the age of 30 walking along the Sea of Galilee. We pick up the story in Mark chapter 1. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, 
casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. So this is the emphasis of uh, the sermon this morning. We're not going beyond this. Uh, so just a few verses for you to tackle. Uh, but I do want to focus on a number of elements in these verses because they really lay out for us what discipleship is all about. So Jesus comes along, walking along the lake, sees a couple of guys, and what were they? They were fishermen, which means what? They didn't make the cut. These guys weren't good enough. They're the B team. Anybody, anybody get cut from a team in their life? A, f- a few. Okay. We've got a lot of liars here. Uh, so if you've ever been cut from a team in your life, if you've ever, you're just on the JV team. These guys, I don't even know if they made the JV team, right? They're the B team. Uh, this is who they are. In their schooling, they were not good enough. And so what happened? They became fishermen because that's what their father was. That's what their father before their father was, uh, were fishermen. And so they didn't make the cut. They're fishermen. These guys would be referred to later on in the Gospels uh, by other people watching Jesus and his disciples and saying, who are these guys? They're just unschooled fishermen. Now, the disciples at this time would have been anywhere from 13 to 20 years old. So they were quite young at the time. Unlike students applying to follow a rabbi, these fishermen are not required to do anything before becoming a disciple of Jesus. They don't need to prove their understanding of Torah. They don't need to pass a qualifying examination in theology. What they need to to know is, are they willing to leave behind everything and follow Jesus? Jesus was different from all the other rabbis. There are actually no rabbinical stories of a rabbi inviting somebody to follow them. Entry into the school of discipleship depended on the initiative of the aspiring student and their ability and capacity to follow the rabbi. So here we have Jesus flip the whole system on its head and Jesus, the rabbi, the leader, actually takes the initiative and says to these fishermen, follow me. Follow me. Rabbis were the most honored, respected, and revered people anywhere. Jesus says to these guys, come follow me. And no wonder they drop everything they had and started to follow him because this was a significant opportunity at that time in this place. What Jesus is actually saying when he says to the fishermen, come follow me, is saying, I think you can do what I do. I think you can know what I know. I think that you can actually become like me. That is what is happening when Jesus invites them to follow him. Now to zero in on a couple of these words here, uh, it doesn't say it in this translation, but many translations have it, come follow me, which is the essence of that word there. Uh, Jesus first calls people to himself to come. He doesn't call us into a religious experience. He doesn't call us into a set of rules that we have to obey. The first thing that Jesus calls us to is himself. People are called to Jesus. This is so important. Jesus calls us to himself. And we're invited to follow him. They're called to, be, to begin a journey. Jesus leads, we follow. In Mark, this means what, the, what he means is to, to come behind and to imitate. To 
be covered in the dust of the rabbi. Like I said, the act of following Jesus entails a risk of faith, and faith must be an act before it is a content of belief. Let me break this down. Only as Jesus is followed can Jesus be known. Only when Jesus is followed can Jesus be known. And now let me, let me rewind back to this word believe. And in our Western modern culture, we think once I figure out and know everything about Jesus, then I will have this, uh, this unbiased view of information and I can make a decision on, uh, based on what I know. But that is not actually the way discipleship works. Jesus says, put your faith in me, follow me, and it's only then that I can be known. So for people that choose not to take the call to follow Jesus, there's an element of who Jesus is and what Jesus is all about that they will never understand. Only as Jesus is followed can he be known. And the passage ends in saying that the disciples followed him. It literally means, that word literally means, and the disciples went away behind him. They chose to go behind him. And then Jesus says, I will make you to become. And this is a word of transformation. The process of becoming disciples is a slow and painful one for the 12 disciples. And we will see throughout the book of Mark how dumb these guys actually are, which I love. I love the book of Mark, seeing how dumb the disciples are because it just gives hope for me. Uh, And these guys are about to engage in this long process of becoming a disciple. They're not there yet. They haven't figured it out yet. Jesus does not expect to have it, for them to have it all figured out in the beginning. It's the opposite of the way the the rabbinical system was already working. He invites them into a process of becoming. The disciples do the following, but Jesus does the transforming. The disciples do the following, but Jesus does the transforming. May we not buy into this lie that we actually have the capacity to change ourselves. When we follow Jesus, that is, that is the role that we play. We, we play the decision to actually give my life to Jesus, not to have it all figured out, to put my trust in him, to follow him. And in the process of following, we actually enter into the opportunity to be transformed by the Spirit of God. We become like Jesus, not because we try hard enough. That's the old rabbinical system. We become like Jesus because we trusted him and he gives us his spirit. And we are transformed from the inside out. This is actually the difference between religion and Christianity properly understood. Religion says we got to figure it out and become different to be acceptable to God. And Christianity properly understood means it's actually about following Jesus. And it's only by the grace, the initiative, and the love of God that we're actually transformed to become like. And then lastly, Jesus invites them to be fishers of men, to fish for people. It's all about ministry. It's all about people. It's every believer that follows Jesus will be invited to minister to people. In fact, We know that the greatest commandment, love God, and the second is like it, love people. These two are inseparable. You cannot love God and follow Jesus without actually engaging in a ministry towards other people. Jesus also calls us into community. These guys did not have the opportunity to say, you know, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I don't like John. I don't like him. You know, it reminds me of like when Lisa and I are... For whatever reason, we take vehicles to the same place and we say to our kids, hey, do you want to go with mom or do you want to go with dad? And uh, sometimes the kids, once in a while, the kids will say, hey, I want to go with dad. Um, 
And then sometimes the second kid says, I want to go with dad. And then the first kid that says, well, if he's going with dad, then I'm not going with dad because uh, they don't want to share the vehicle together. And sometimes we're like little kids. We're like, I want to follow Jesus, but not if they're beside me. You see, if we're following one person, we're following Jesus, and he invites people to come alongside him, and we say, I don't want to follow them if they're following them, then actually we forfeit the opportunity to follow him because that's not our decision to make. Jesus invites all people to follow him. Which means when you start following Jesus and you look beside you, that's your family. That's who else is following Jesus. That's who you're doing life with because you are working at mimicking Jesus both, both the same, trying to become like Jesus, understanding that none of you are getting it perfectly, but you're all in process. And so if we actually understand the call, the grace, that we're all in this process together, it gives us grace and love for one another on the journey. A couple other points I'll draw out. One of the disciples, he calls them, and they were, it says many in the nets, they were preparing their nets. And the other disciple, the set of disciples are fishing. They're in action. And so I was just thinking of this as I was pondering this text, that some of you in this room are in a, in a place in your life where you're preparing. You're not yet busy. You're not yet doing your job. You haven't yet kind of reached your goals, and maybe you want a certain job or you want to get married or whatever. You're at the beginning of that stage, and you're preparing. Some of you are in that busy stage of life. You're working. you got a family. Like everything, you know, the goals that you had in life, maybe you're accomplishing some, but you're in the midst of it and you're busy. And guess what? Jesus calls those who are preparing and those who are busy. And I know. I've been in both of those stages in my life, and it's easy to have excuses. I'm preparing. i got all the stuff that i got to get ready before I get on to the real things. Jesus, maybe someday I'll follow you. Or the other side, I'm busy. You know, I... You know, I, I gave my whole life, I went to school, I, you know, I, I prepared all the stuff and I finally am into the things that I've always wanted and I'm, I'm busy with my career, with my, you know, accomplishing my goals and Jesus invites you to follow him. Whether you're in a stage of preparing, whether you're in a stage of being busy, Jesus is calling you to drop everything and follow him. Now, this is the frightening thing about the call of discipleship. From what are people called when Jesus called them? What did it mean for these guys at that time? It actually meant a whole lot more for them than it means for you and I, believe it or not. It was normal for their children, even married children, to live in the same house. You say, well, that's not that different than my house. My kids are married, they're still living in my house. And if, if you didn't stay living in your parents' house you would, and you moved out, you would actually move out and just add on to the existing building. You would build a room outside of the house that you would live in. Uh, so they would literally be next door, next door in the same property. Uh, they would have to leave the only trade they ever knew. And it wasn't even about giving up income, although it was about that as well. It was actually about even disappointing your parents because you were in the family businesses. To leave, those, uh, to leave that occupation to follow Jesus meant probably disappointing your parents. It meant actually a change in the succession plan from generation to generation to generation, this trade has been passed down, and you were the one that said, I'm not doing that, I'm doing something different. In that world, you didn't choose a career. You had a career because of the virtue of what family you were in. They put their whole family business in jeopardy because of their decision. Would they leave everything, their identity, 
their family, their source of income to follow Jesus? And obviously we know the answer for the first disciples that Jesus called was yes. But what did it mean for them to leave? Well, we see immediately that Simon and Andrew says they left their nets and followed him. What did Simon and Andrew leave behind? And this is the easy test. It's right in front of you. What did Simon and Andrew leave behind? Now look at the next section. What did James and John leave behind? Their father. So does that mean that Simon and Andrew followed Jesus and brought their father? Does that mean that James and John followed Jesus, but they brought their nets? No, you see, these are not four identical fishermen. They're different, and the implications are different. What Mark is wanting us to see here is that for them to actually leave and follow Jesus meant something different for each of them. And if you're familiar with those biblical characters, you can actually see that uh, very clearly. If you know Peter, you know, Peter did whatever he did with all his might. Whatever he said, he put his foot in his mouth. He was a natural leader. When Jesus was looking for a volunteer, he was the first one to put up his hand. He was probably a great fisherman, probably very competent. We can tell from his writings and uh, the stories about him that he was probably pretty competitive. And who did Jesus send to get a coin uh, when he needed a coin from the fish? He sent Peter. When Peter left Jesus, uh, when Jesus went to the cross, what did he leave Peter to do? What did he say he was going to go do? He said he was going to go catch fish. See, Peter was a businessman. Peter was a fisherman. He was a net man. He was a goal-oriented, driven kind of guy. And then we compare that to John, and they're referred to in the text as what? The sons of Zebedee. There's a relational qualifier used for these guys to talk about them. They're not net men. They're not, they're not concerned with their jobs or their goals, their vocational goals. They are daddy's boys. If you read the Gospel of John, if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, you'll, you'll quickly come to realize this. What does John talk about over and over and over again in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John? Love one another. God is love. Love one another. He is a relational guy through and through. Why would Mark tell us what they left? The first two, I believe, would have left their friends and their family at the drop of a hat. Jesus, you want me to leave my family? No problem. But don't ask me to give up my business. I think the second guys would have left fishing right away. But for them to leave their family was significant. So I believe what Mark is saying is this. Simon and Andrew left their nets, even their nets. James and John left their father, even their father. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what it is for you. What, what thing that you guard so tightly that you, you know, you're fine with following Jesus. Like, Jesus, I can follow you in all these areas, but not this one area. Not my job. Not this piece of my identity. Not my family. Just let me have this. And it... And I believe that Jesus actually isn't interested in anything else but this because everything else you're, you're freely giving to him already. The thing he's most interested in is the things that we have the hardest time giving him because oh, those are the items that actually steal our affection from him. 
Those are the items that actually hold us back from truly following him. This is the frightening call of discipleship. These fellows left their families, their source of income. They left their family business. They left their succession plan. They were willing to give up that which was most precious to them to pursue the one, pursue Jesus, to follow him, to actually believe that they might be able to know what he knows, do what he does, and be like him. It's a sobering invitation. And that's why the Gospels, and in Jesus' teaching, he tells us to count the cost of following him. We shouldn't uh, we shouldn't be ignorant of that, that when we sign up to follow Jesus, you know, he is a jealous God. He wants every part of us. But, there is a but. We'll find 10 verses later, the book of Mark. You've read ahead. If you read your book, you would know, you know the answer to this. Uh, where, where are they in the next section? They're at Simon's mother-in-law's house. So Simon, we know, is married. They're at the mother-in-law's house. And so, yes, they chose to follow Jesus, but we find very shortly he's hanging out with his family. We know that these four fishermen gave up their entire fishing business and career to follow Jesus. But look what happens in Mark 3, verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. Mark 4.35, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Oh, I didn't change that. Uh, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with with them. They took him with them. In the what? I need your help reading, please. Uh, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. Totally butchered that. And when Jesus has stepped out of the what? Boat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And he let them, left them, got into the boat again and went into the other side. What is happening here? I thought these guys left everything to follow Jesus, and they did. But here's the beautiful thing about following Jesus. Yes, you have to be willing to leave everything. Yes, you have to be willing to give him everything. Yes, he's the king of kings and lord of lords, and to follow him means you must abandon everything like the first disciples. But when you give everything to Jesus, it doesn't mean that you no longer get to enjoy those things. It just means that Jesus owns them. Jesus, we'll see, uses the disciples' boat over and over and over and over again through the Gospel of Mark. Where did he get the boat from? Well, he got it from Simon and Andrew and James and John. They were their boats. So, yeah, they still get to enjoy their boats. Yeah, they still get to enjoy their families. But they all serve the purpose of following Jesus. And so when Jesus says, hey, I want to ride in your boat, they say, well, it's your boat. I'm following you with my life. So I don't know what this means for you. Your time, your money, your job, your talents, your gifts, your spouse, your kids. But I, knew, I do know a couple things. I do know it doesn't matter if you think you're on the B team. It doesn't matter if you're not good enough because Jesus invites you not based on your capacity or ability, but he invites you because he knows that you have it in you to be like him through his spirit. 
that if you would make the decision to follow him, he will partner with you in order to become like him. So all those thoughts to say, well, I'm not good enough. I can't, I don't know if I can actually keep it together. Don't buy into that lie that says, I believe. You know, you got to figure it all out in your head. No, understand believe means trust and follow. Follow him. Come follow him. And so that means when he invites you to follow him, he believes that you can do what he does. He believes that you can be like him. He believes that you actually can be his disciple. But that does mean you have to be willing to let go of things that you might be currently hanging on to because they are your source of identity. They're your source of security. And Jesus is saying, you got to let go of those things. Not because you still won't be able to enjoy them, because those now are actually at my service. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And I want to give an invitation to you. This morning we got to witness four baptisms. We got to witness uh, four people that said, I haven't got my life figured out, but I've got love and grace figured out. And because of that, I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to trust Jesus as I follow him and give up everything that he's going to lead me, guide me, and transform me. And that decision, that decision uh, is made when we take the step of obedience, just like Jesus did in his own baptism, to be baptized. And this Easter Sunday uh, in April, we are ha- we're having another opportunity for baptisms on Easter Sunday. And I would like to invite anyone who has not yet taken that step of baptism to actually respond and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to respond to that call to take that step of baptism on Easter Sunday. And so you might feel the Spirit kind of stirring your heart in that now, and and you might think, hey, I'm going to walk out and I'll figure it out later. Uh, But often Jesus speaks to our hearts and we need to respond uh, into what he is asking us to do. And so during this worship time, uh, if you are not someone who's taken that step of baptism, I'll just ask you uh, to pray and to reflect if, if Jesus is inviting you to get into the waters of baptism, if he's inviting you to actually let go of everything you might hang on to in this life and put your hope and security in him and to respond to his call to come follow him. So reflect on that as we worship together, then I'll come up and give some further instruction at the end of the song. As we consider that call, come follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. You realize that God looks at you and he calls you to himself, not because of anything you've done. And so you can't disqualify yourself if God hasn't disqualified you. And he invites us to respond to him with the promise that he will be the one to transform us. And I just invite you to close your eyes. I hear as we close service for a minute. And I, I believe that there's kind of two levels of response. One is that we respond first to Jesus in our hearts and we say, you know, Jesus, I want to follow you. And that's a private decision. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. But we recognize that following Jesus um, also means that at some point it becomes an actionable item uh, that is observable. And that's kind of marked by the second decision of baptism. So I want to give an opportunity uh, 
for both responses this morning. With your eyes closed, I would just I would just invite those who maybe have never made a decision to private, you know, privately in their own heart to actually give Jesus their heart and say, I want my life to evolve around you, Jesus, that you would be the leader, the Lord, the forgiver, my savior. That I would actually come behind you in relationship with you. I want to respond to that call in my heart this morning. Come follow you. And if there's anyone in this room that has never taken that step of faith before, I just invite you to, to raise a hand. Say, hey, that's me this morning. Raise a hand. Decision to follow Jesus. I would give the second opportunity as well. That there's many of you who have made a decision in your heart to follow Jesus, but you actually haven't taken that step of obedience to say, I, I am going to get in the water. I am going to become public in my faith. Uh, and I'm going to follow Jesus' example, who also got in the water baptism. And I'm going to die to myself. Follow Jesus and give him lordship and reign in my life. Uh, and if you're someone that would want to take that step of baptism... Uh, in our Easter services this April, I'd invite you to put up a hand and say, hey, I, I want to do that this April. Anyone else wanting to take a step of baptism? Great. Here's someone who uh, has raised their hand with either of those responses. I would just invite you to, to come and uh, talk to myself you want to take the step of baptism and you don't catch me this morning, you can also just write that in the in your connection card and put that in the, uh, the offering box outside that, that you're wanting to take the step of baptism. We'd love to walk with you in that. Uh, let me pray for you. As I pray, I'll invite our, our prayer teams forward. Uh, they are always available after services to pray with you about anything that the Lord might be stirring in your hearts. And so Jesus, we thank you uh, that you are you are God. We thank you that you came in the flesh to reveal the heart of God to us. That you took the initiative. Lord, I thank you that for all of us who have disqualified ourselves because we think that we're not good of us, good enough, that you have spoken against that lie and you have called us to yourself and said you are. That you can follow me. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would respond. Uh, to that, Lord, that we would follow you, that we would become your disciples, that we would be covered in the dust of our rabbi because we are following so closely behind you. Lord, I pray that we would be transformed. We know, Lord, that you love us too much to stay the same. And for those in our room, those in this room this morning, God, that are, are struggling, that know there's things in their life that need to change but are feeling powerless uh, in front of those things, Lord, that you, through your spirit, would give them the power to overcome, that you would set them free, or that you would empower them to follow you, to be like you and do the things that you did. Lord, we invite your kingdom to come in the lives of each individual here, but also in the life of this church, that we might be marked and be known as people that follow Jesus. Pray this in the powerful name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.